On a rainy September afternoon, I had joined my kids in a waiting room while Marcia made her final visit to the doctor before our baby arrived. We picked out names, we prepared the nursery, and I remember the nurse coming to get me and offering to stay with the children. She said, Mr. Reveley, your wife wants you. I rounded the corner into the room and Marcia looked at me. There's no heartbeat. It had not yet sunk in when she followed up by saying, I guess bad things can happen to us too. We had plenty to lament that fall. To describe the experience would pretty much ruin the sermon, so I won't. We didn't use the words that I'm going to use this morning, but in those circumstances, then and now, what we needed was a believing response to pain. We didn't talk about lament, but we did have some brutal facts. We had plenty to complain about. But the aspect of lament that we needed more than any was to turn to God and confess that He was in the right when our world felt so wrong. We found sweet help in Lamentations chapter 3. I invite you to turn there. Lamentations chapter 3. And while you're turning, I just want to say that Lament is uh, something that describes a believing response to pain. We're not commanded to lament, but rather we can see in the scriptures and the Psalms and the Lamentations, other places where God's people are suffering and believing, and we can watch how they respond to God and lament. And so that's what we're looking at now is what does it look like for us to have a believing response to pain. Let me begin reading in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. And let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. And let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. What separates Christian lament from secular sorrow is a deliberate turning to God. 
This turning to God is a deliberate choice to do three things. And these three things, in the spirit of Lamentations, I'm going to uh, suggest, start with A and B and C. The, the book of Lamentations is a series of acrostic or ABC poems. And so, in that vein, I want to suggest to you that point one will be A, point two will be B, and point three will be C. How's that? So, the first thing, first aspect of turning to God is to accept God's involvement in your suffering. Accept God's involvement. I say accept God's involvement because that's a hard thing to get your head around. Uh, just look at the first nine verses there of Lamentations 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Notice how he has a focus, almost an obsession, you might say, on how God is intimately involved with his suffering. If this were a whodunit mystery investigation, Jeremiah, the author, is a detective who will not let his chief suspect rest. He puts a finger straight at God, who has done this. But maybe this is an exception. Maybe this is an anomaly. Maybe this, I don't know, only happened here or something. Could God possibly do hard things to him? Would God possibly do something to his child that his child did not think was good? Well, here is a quick sample of a few other Lamentations verses that sound somewhat similar. Chapter 1, verse 5. It says, Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. Or chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. This is going to stop there because Jeremiah points out that God has done this. And God doing this is part of God keeping his word. He had promised that he would judge idolatry in his covenant. And now, after centuries of idolatry, he has finally brought this judgment about. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice. He is faithful to his promise, even as he brings hard things. Then chapter 3, verse 38 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now, I, I think, not that it matters, but I think that verse needs a little editing, don't you? I would edit it and say, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good comes? But that is not what the Bible actually says. The Bible actually says they both come from the hand of God. That God is involved in your suffering and in your blessing. This last summer, we looked at the book of Job. Job had plenty to lament. And here's how he describes the Lord's involvement in his uh, undeserved suffering. He said, naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord has given. We like that part. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then, just, just to make sure that it's okay to say this, the writer of the book of Job says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And again, as you may remember, he gets a second cycle of suffering. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, But he said to his wife here, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In other words, it's okay to say that God is involved in my suffering. The great psalm about God's word, Psalm 119, says this, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. You have afflicted me. Not only have you afflicted me, but you've done it in faithfulness. God's character doesn't change as he afflicts us. Think about the most unjust, undeserving thing you can think of, namely the murder of Jesus. Here is what the Bible says about God's involvement there. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief, Isaiah 53.10. Or the one we looked at last Easter in Acts chapter 2. When Peter, in the first Christian sermon, says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God's purpose, God's plan, God's foreknowledge, God's giving and taking away, all of it, God is, in all of it, God is involved. And I think this might be the hardest part of lament, recognizing that God is involved, recognizing that God is not Alexa or Siri, he does not exist to make your life easier. Now, even as I say that, I know there is an intellectual hurdle here. Because how can a good God allow, permit, advance something bad? 
and still be good. Philosophers talk about the end or the purpose of things and their, their telos. The, the end of God is not your easy and happy life. Intellectually, we need to come to accept that a good God is involved in hard things and still remains good. We don't have to understand it. I don't think Job did. We don't even have to be excited about it. I don't know that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane was excited about it. But intellectually, we need to be able to say, God in his infinite wisdom is doing something in this world and something in my life and something through these bad things that I do not comprehend. And I accept that. It's one thing to say it intellectually, though, emotionally, there is still another hurdle to clear. How can the God that I believe in get so crosswise with me? How can a God who is supposed to love me treat me so badly? Gerald Sisser, in his great book, A Grace Disguised, uh, speaks of this emotional hurdle in words better than I uh, could come up with. And his loss was unique. He, he lost his mother, he lost his wife, and he lost his daughter, all in the same automobile accident. And here is the way that he processes this pain. He says, my loss made God seem inscrutable and terrifying. For a long time, I saw his sovereignty as towering cliffs on a winter day, icy, cold, and windswept. I stood in my misery at the base of the cliff and looked up at its forbidding, unscalable wall. I felt overwhelmed, intimidated, and crushed by its hugeness. There was nothing inviting or comforting about it. It loomed over me, completely oblivious to my presence in pain. It defied climbing, yet mocked my puniness. I yelled at God to acknowledge my suffering and to take responsibility for it. But all I heard was a lonely echo of my own voice. That is the emotional hurdle that we have to face when we accept that God is involved. And I read that to you because it does two things. One, I think it expresses the emotional hurdle, but the other thing is it does represent suffering with reference to God, where you face it, where you acknowledge that he is involved. Because part of our lament is accepting circumstances that are unhappy and accepting a God who makes us uncomfortable. I don't think there's anything to lament if God answers every prayer, if he does it in 74 degree sunshine. I mean, what's, what's there to lament then? The lament is that my life is hard. And I don't understand why. And God could fix it but he doesn't. At least that's the place to start. At least then, when I acknowledge that, accept that, I'm dealing with God rather than ignoring him and pretending he's not involved. 
And I would tell you from experience that it makes a big difference if God is involved. And so the question then is, can you accept that? Which brings me to the second aspect of turning to the Lord. You accept his involvement first, and then you believe. You believe in God's character and his covenant promises. You believe in God's character and his covenant promises. Let's look at those in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I just want to read those over and over. Because they're some of the most beautiful words ever penned. Steadfast love translates one of the most precious words in the Old Testament, chesed. It's a word that describes both God's affection and his faithfulness. That God keeps his promises and that he does it because he loves there is no real good English translation. There are several English translations. Loving kindness is one. Steadfast love is another. But it's this commitment, God's commitment to love and to show affection and to be faithful to promises. And that never ceases. It may look like it ceases. It may look like God has stopped loving you. It may seem like He's done being faithful, but he never stops. Now, I want you to think about this, because this is easy to say when you see a beautiful sunrise. In fact, you've probably even seen pictures with this verse as a caption for a beautiful sunrise picture. Your mercies are new every morning. It's easy when you have a glorious vacation on the beach or a weekend on the slopes when all is right with the world, we're inclined to think God's faithful covenant love never fails. I feel so loved by him right now. When we're in church and we sing like we did a few moments ago, great is your faithfulness. Seems as though that's certain. And we're inclined to think that these beautiful words are in the, in the phraseology of Proverbs, apples of gold and settings of silver. <laughs> They are, however, apples of gold in the middle of a mudslide or placed in the center of a war zone. They are completely out of context with the world around Jeremiah at the time. I can imagine him sitting at his writing desk, looking out at the sunrise, only to have it obscured by the smoke rising from the fires that have been burning all night just down the street. I imagine his thoughts are interrupted by the wails of a mother whose child died the night before and her cries pierce the morning. The cadence, this beautiful cadence, his mercy never comes to an end. may have been generated by the military drums of the Babylonian invaders that wake the remains of the city. And he writes, your mercies are new every morning. They're new every morning. 
think this indicates that there is a fresh supply of mercy and kindness every morning. Every new day awakes to a new supply of mercy and kindness. Even the dark days get their own supply of God's covenant love and mercy. This is not the high point of the author's life. This is the very worst imaginable situation. The evilest of empires has just sacked Jerusalem. And now he proclaims the covenant faithfulness of the Lord never ceases. The covenant love of God is undimmed by dark circumstances. The offer, the covenant love of God offers the hope that yes, Again, you will feel loved. Yes, again, you will feel accepted. The covenant faithfulness is God's resolve not to finally abandon his children. The measure of God's covenant love and faithfulness is not your circumstances. The measure of God's covenant love and faithfulness and kindness is the bloody body of his perfect son on a Roman cross. And the cross stands as God's testament to his covenant faithfulness to you so that you might find his love and his mercy new again today. The scripture still stands. God has not changed, even if life has. Lamentation 3, 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. He says, the Lord is my portion. That is to say, what I have is God's. It might mean that all I have left is God. But it also indicates I couldn't hope for anything more. When you feel like you've lost everything, you still have the best thing because God is your portion. Here's what Thomas Brooks says about, about this. He says, God is such a portion. He's such a portion that no friend, no foe, no devil can rob you of. Oh, Christian, God is so yours in Christ. He is so yours by covenant. He is so yours by promise and so yours by purchase and so yours by conquest and so yours by marriage union and communion and so yours by the earnest of the Spirit and so yours by the feelings and witnesses of the Spirit that no power on earth can ever pilfer your portion or cheat or rob you of your portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is the language of Psalm 73, a psalm of lament. When uh, it addresses the question, why do the wicked prosper? I'm not prospering, I don't get it. And he comes to the conclusion, and this is his conclusion. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? 
And there is none on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The Lord is good, he says, to those who wait for him. To the soul who seeks him, the Lord is good. The circumstances are bad, but the Lord is good to those who wait for him. In the midst of this devastation, the author is committed again to the goodness of God and the badness of the circumstances don't change the goodness of God. God is good when you get married. God is good when your marriage struggles. God is good when your friends gather around and God is good when you're lonely. God is good when he gives you health and God is good when he grants you sickness. God is good when you live in America and God is good when you live under a communist dictator. And I just want to say that you will continue to struggle with the goodness of God if you don't regularly behold it in his word. If you do not seek a fresh supply of the goodness and kindness and mercy of God every day, You'll never believe God's character and covenant faithfulness when your life is hard. You must have the scriptures. As a child of God, this is your keystone habit. This is the fundamental mark that you must hit. You have to have God's word. Because it's there that he reveals his character. It's there that he reveals his covenant promises. And it's unfair to say that this doesn't work for you if you don't have his word. In fact, I'd go so far as to say your religion is nothing more than a shot in the dark without God's word. If you don't regularly find ways to take God's word into your life, your religion is little more than superstition. He continues in verse 26. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. In the midst of all this devastation, we find something that is good. It is good to wait quietly. Waiting quietly is good. It's the posture of waiting. It's not just what you're waiting for. It's the way that you're waiting. And see, I think that does have a lot to instruct us in our difficult times, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This assumes, too, that there are ways to endure your circumstances that are not good. But I would say it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 28, let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust and there yet may be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. This reminds me a little bit of the admonition of James. Let patience have its perfect work. They may be perfect and entire lacking nothing. Its perfect work is the perfect work of affliction is going to be your humility. Let patience, let affliction have its humbling work. Put your mouth in the dust. Notice verse 30. He says, uh, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes it. 
Sounds like Jesus was familiar with lamentations when he said, turn the other cheek. Jesus himself, in his lowest moment, gave his cheek to the ones who spit on it, to the ones who struck it before he was crucified. And then verses 31 to 33, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. What a resolute statement of hope. God will not cast off forever. You feel cast off forever? It will not last. This too shall pass. Notice God's involvement. God causes grief, but his compassion is certain. His character and his commitment to his covenant ensure that your grief will not. Then he arrives at verse 33, which I'm just going to point out is the very center of this book. In fact, I would say it's the pinnacle of the book. And I, know, I want you to notice it's the center because chapters 1 and chapter 2 have 22 verses. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 have 22 verses. Chapter 3 is 66. In the middle of 66 is 33. And you could think of it as though it's this mountain peak. And at the peak is verse 33, which tells us he does not willingly afflict or grieve. I mean, given the level of artistry and structure of this book, I cannot think that this is an accident. A literal translation of this would, would simply be, the Lord does not afflict from the heart. The Lord does not afflict from the heart. When he afflicts, he has reasons. But those are not his deep down desires to love and bless his children. Sometimes his reasons are obvious. Sometimes we never see them. Either way, <laughs> this tells us, his heart is not in it. Because his heart is to show compassion. His heart is to show kindness and mercy. Mercy occupies his heart. His covenant love springs up from his heart. And there are times when he must judge or must discipline. When he must do some grander thing that brings hardship to his children but it does not come from his heart. And so I want you to see the heart of Jesus because you can believe it. You can trust and believe the character and covenant promise of God. You can accept that he's involved. And then third, confess. Confess that God is in the right. Accept, believe, and confess that God is right. This, is a, this confession is a combination of the other two. If God is involved in your suffering and God's covenant, uh, his character and his covenant promises tell you that you can trust him, then the only response is a confession. 
that he is in the right. And that actually is the final step in turning. This, it represents a complete turn. To turn all the way to God is to confess that he is in the right. Look at chapter 3, verse 39. Why should a living man complain? A man about the punishment of his sins. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself in a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. Here's a prayer that moves beyond complaint into confession. He recognizes his own and their own responsibility for their sin. He recognizes complaint is not enough. Because he says, let's test and examine and return. And returning is that prayer that reorients you to who God is. Note, the prayer doesn't look like the ones that we're taught to pray. Right? There's no amen at the end. There's no happy ending. In fact, this prayer, he says, we confess and you haven't forgiven. You pursue in anger. You have wrapped yourself in a cloud. Our prayers can't even pass through. But I'm just going to say, this pathetic prayer is doing exactly what we're talking about, isn't it? He has turned to God. He has confessed his sin. He is honestly telling God how he feels. This is a believing response to pain. And it's a step, I think, beyond mere complaining. Look too at verse 55 there in chapter 3. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called you. You said, don't fear. You've taken up my cause. Oh, Lord, you have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, oh, Lord. Judge my cause. And here is the description of the relationship that he has with Yahweh. He says, I called, you heard. Then he says, don't close your ear. You came near. He says, don't fear. You have taken up my cause like a good attorney. You have redeemed my life. What does he mean by that? In the midst of my circumstances, you have reclaimed my life as your own. You have reclaimed me. This is not, I would point out, the conversation one has with an enemy. Rather, this is a conversation one has with a friend. And part of confessing that God is in the right is confessing our sins. Because all of our suffering is on some kind of a spectrum. One side of this spectrum is what Israel is experiencing. God's covenant faithfulness demands judgment on their sins. 
The opposite side of the spectrum would be the suffering of Jesus, which was undeserved. And in between in this spectrum, there, um, the circumstances may account directly or indirectly for our sin. So we confess our sin wherever it is on this spectrum so that our conscience might be clear and our appeal to God might be from a clear conscience so that we might ask God to forgive and to relent. And so if your life is such that it's full of brutal facts, and I think most of us probably have plenty. What are you going to do? You need to accept that God is involved in your suffering. You need to believe in his character and his covenant promises. And you need to confess that he is in the right. So you confess your sins and you ask him to hear and to relent and to draw near. And I'm just going to suggest that's not easy. I just know that. And if you have a hard time accepting and believing and confessing, maybe it will help if I remind you that Jesus is God's ultimate sign of covenant faithfulness. I hope that you can accept that God was involved in the suffering of Jesus for your sins. I hope that you can believe that God's character and covenant love find its fullest expression in the person of Jesus. It was God's covenant love that sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God's covenant love must judge sin. And when he did, he placed your judgment on Jesus. God's covenant love holds out to you a new covenant promise of forgiveness for your sins if you will confess them. Jesus sealed that promise, that covenant. Jesus sealed that covenant with his blood. And so you can be sure God's mercies are new every morning and that his faithfulness is great. Let's pray. Lord, great God and Father, we are humbled at the prospect that we even need a Savior. Some of us just are so entrenched in making our own way that the prospect that we need Jesus to be our Savior uh, overwhelms us. Father, more than that, we are overwhelmed that Jesus himself is the manifestation of the very words we have read today, that you are kind and merciful, that you are full of steadfast love, and so, Lord, we, um, we love you, and we come to you um, with humility, 
And we ask that you would grant us relief from the things that cause us pain. But most of all, Father, I pray that you would help us to turn to you in faith, trusting your character and your covenant faithfulness that you manifest in Christ, in whose name we pray.